Hello, welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, still. And I'm back with Matt Christensen. And Tim, I'm a computer Hello. teacher, Cox. <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, is it, though? Is it really? We'll find out tonight, though, or today, or whenever you're listening. <laughs> Because today our subject is going to be computer science. And so that's a very broad topic. We're going to hit just some some kind of basics of computer science, uh, even just some basics of computers before we get basics of computer science. Um, so hopefully uh, whatever your layman status is, as long as you're not a, a professional, um, I guess I should give once again my caveat here. And this is uh, sometimes in this podcast, though it says learn it from a layman, we diverge from our actual layman uh, roots, and we talk about things that we actually know a bit about. I am a computer, I, I'm a software engineer, have been for about 11 years, so um, I, I don't play really video cool. games. <laughs> but to be fair, these days, everyone works on the computer, so, or, you know, a lot of people. So um, I don't think I can necessarily claim that I'm so of a different world than a layman that I can't, uh, you know, do this podcast. Anyway, we're going to start with hardware. That's where we're starting today. We're going to start to uh, talk about computer hardware, and Matt's going to give us just kind of a very basic um, understanding of some of the computer hardware, and we'll take it from there. Matt? Okay. So uh, your computer is, uh, it, it has a number of parts, most of them box-shaped uh, generally, we're familiar with things like keyboard, mouse, monitor, and then that other box that is the computer. Uh, that's if you're old school. If you're new school, you have a laptop and it's all this one containerized thing. And, and if you're a heathen, then you have uh, something called an iPad. Um, <laughs> sorry, we just lost our <laughs> Apple audience. Good riddance. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Within those various boxes, and, and we're going to talk about the parts that you would that, that do the computer's work. You, you have different components that do different things. Well, well, no kidding. But let's talk about what they are. Just in general, your your computer has a, a couple different chunks of hardware that do the processing, that do the thinking, and and the main one is the CPU or central processing unit. Uh, you may recognize it as the thing that has the gigahertz. Um, okay, what does that mean? Well, well, that's your your computer's basic calculation instrument, if you will, or the brain, if you will, if if you desperately need an analogy, even though it's not quite correct, but whatever. No, it's not. But um, but it is the thing that performs calculations. And when we talk about some number of gigahertz, that is the number of cycles that your uh, processor goes through every second. A three gigahertz processor, it goes through three billion, giga being the prefix for billion, uh, cycles per second. So it can do three billion operations. That's cool. Uh, the more gigahertz, the the more operations your processor can do every second, and therefore the faster it is. Okay, well, that's one piece. Your processor sits on a large chunk of circuitry called the motherboard. The motherboard 
you can think of this as kind of the the nerves, the blood vessels, the infrastructure that connects all the different parts of your computer to each other. Um, again, if you're desperate for an analogy, even though it's kind of bad, whatever. Uh, but your motherboard um, connects everything to everything else. Uh, on that motherboard, uh, you'll have your RAM, your memory. RAM meaning, uh, being an acronym, R-A-M, Random Access Memory. The memory is the, it is what the computer uses to store information that it is working on right now. Uh, things that are currently being operated on, programs that are currently running, processes and data sets that are actively being manipulated, that is done in RAM or in the memory. If you and want, the, uh, if, no, oh, go sorry, for it. I was going to say, if you want a flawed metaphor to understand this, you could think of this as the computer's work table. Everything it's working on at the moment, and it has to put somewhere, it puts it in the RAM, which is kind of like a work table. That is actually probably the, the best metaphorical analogy thingy, metaphorical analogy, that we're going to come up with tonight. <laughs> that, that was good, actually. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah. So, that's why so, Tim. That's why they paid him to do this, right? Big we money. But somebody does. <laughs> uh, anyway, your RAM is measured in uh, gigabytes, uh, and and that is uh, the amount of data that can be stored in RAM. It's its capacity. It's the size of that work table. Uh, bigger the better. If you have 16 gigabytes of RAM, you can operate on. 16 billion little chunks of information, but little bytes at a time. That's pretty cool. Um, what about the stuff that your computer is not working on right now? What about the stuff that your computer stores in its long-term memory, but it's not recalling right at the moment? Well, that stuff sits on your hard drive or hard disk. Um, this is you know, kind of an analogy, long-term memory. It is all of the programs that are stored on your computer and when you activate them uh, they load that data from the hard drive into the RAM so that your computer can use it and operate on it with the processor. Um, hard disk again capacity is gigabytes and or, or, or even terabytes now. Um, one terabyte being one trillion bytes. It's a lot of bytes but data is getting bigger and bigger too. Um, all right, well, that's cool. Uh, other chunks of your computer that you might care about or that you might not, um, your computer has a power supply. Well, everything needs power. Uh, your computer might have different cooling systems, uh, whether fans, cooling metal heat sinks, or if you are uh, a, a gamer or an aspiring gamer, then you may have a liquid cooling system. Uh, again, if you are a gamer, you may have a video card. This is a chunk of hardware that is dedicated to processing video information, uh, and, and especially 3D objects and manipulations. Um, those are, are kind of your basic chunks of a computer, and, and different computers that are specialized for different things may have more or less of those parts. Uh, is you can actually make a computer that doesn't have a hard disk that just loads everything into RAM. Um, 
it's weird, but you can do that if if you so feel like. It. Don't don't worry about that. That's <laughs> not not anything the layman should be doing. But that's kind of your Challenge your basic accepted. computer. Oh please, um, that that's kind of your basic computer hardware set. Yeah. So, so one thing that, I know that the layman is probably interested in, as far as hard drives go, is they uh, know. I mean, right now, generally, your computers you buy have solid state drives or solid state hard drives. Um, could, Matt, do you want to explain why or, or those are sure. better than your uh, your old traditional hard drive disk? Yeah. Way back in ye old ancient days, when yon computer shop, spelled with two P's and an extra E on the <laughs> e, end, yes, um, was was selling, you know, it's the the original stuff. Um, your hard drive used a series of rotating magnetic platters uh, to encode and store and and, and retrieve the information. Um, just a stack of pancakes, metal pancakes your computer with a bunch of stuff on it and the the speed with which you could access that information was directly tied to how fast you could spin those little metal platters well there's limits to that i mean you can only get these things up to so much rpms before they become uh revolutions per minute um, before they become well either dangerous or they degrade really really fast and, and it kind of peaked at around uh 10,000 rpm which would allow you to access all of that data pretty quickly. But you were still held up with a mechanical process um, for how fast you could get the data from your hard drive into your RAM. And that, what that really translates to is loading time. All your software programs would load, 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 load. And it was driven by how fast your computer was spinning those little metal platters or, or magnetic platters. Um, well, eventually, uh, the, the solid-state hard drive was developed, which has no mechanical moving parts. Uh, it is purely, well, it's solid-state electronics. Uh, the data is not stored in a, in a mechanical disk. It is stored uh, wholly electronically. And because of that, there is no mechanical delay in accessing your information. And a solid-state hard drive will hands down outperform a traditional disk drive uh, every time. It, it's it's not even close. And so if you take a standard computer running whatever you choose to run, and you boot it up with a high-end disk drive, it will take 30 seconds, something like that. A uh, computer running equivalent software on a solid state drive will boot in single digit seconds uh, it just because it doesn't have that mechanical delay uh, in in the processing chain i think that's and if i very, can, if i can yeah, go ahead, insert real quick here that that um that process or that what matt just described has been kind of the story of the advance of computers um over the decades um, I'll give another example of moving from mechanical to, um, you know, moving from a, a clunky and much slower mechanical motion to something much improved. Um, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, when they were first developing, you know, things that could do what we would consider computing, um, the information that computers stored 
and processed was done with actual mechanical switches, little levers that would switch to an on or an off position and, you know, passing electricity. But again, those, those little levers would have to actually switch on and off, on and off. And, um, you know, there's only so fast that they can go and they would break down and stuff. Um, and you'd have these huge machines that would fill up rooms. Um, then they were able to, they learned that they could do the same thing with vacuum tubes um, that could perform the same function, but at a, you know, again, much faster and, and with much less wear and, and less of that mechanical motion. Then later on, and I'm sorry to not give a real good explanation here, but they developed the, you know, these transistors, which could do the same function. Um, and anyways, so it, you saw the computer got more and more efficient as they were able to switch from these mechanical motions to what now on, on a you know microscopic level. Um, anyways, I don't know if you guys have anything to add. You, you might understand that better than I do. But if, if you have ever wondered how did they get from these room sized you know, ENIAC, whatever machines to something that's, you know, many times more powerful that can slip into my pocket. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of it is a story of, of figuring out how to store and process those little switches from on and off zeros and ones in, in a microscopic form that doesn't require mechanical motion. Yeah, that I, I can't give a, a history of it for sure. So, um, if Matt can, then we'll, we'll let him. Otherwise, I can I can talk a little bit about uh, I can take from where you just ended us a little bit into binary and and talk a little bit about what that looks like. Uh, I think that's a a good lay introduction to the history. Uh, I I look forward to uh, continuing on our journey of computer science knowledge here. Uh, okay, all right. So let's take it from there. So um, so Tim was talking about ones and zeros and and um. You know, true or false. So that, uh, generally, we're talking transistors and and how they got microscopic. Um, we'll leave for either a different podcast or for your own research. But um, the general idea with a a computer is true, false, zero, one, um, and zero, one is 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 binary. So that's a way to encode information, essentially. You say true, false, zero, one. You use a one or a zero to represent true or false. Right. Exactly. So. Same thing, exactly. They're just uh, uh, synonymous, true and false, false being zero, true being one. Um, and and the transistor is essentially, is it charged or is it not charged? Is it, um, and uh, and so that's that's where you get the basic idea for a computer being uh, the, the system encoding information in, in what's known as binary. And that's these zeros and ones. And so binary is the, so if you... Probably have seen the movie The Matrix. Uh, you see all those zeros and ones, uh, you know, streaming that Neo can see. So yeah. that's un generally that's what computers deal in. Obviously, that's how they work. Um, but from there, we you know we start abstracting because that becomes obscene if you're talking about billions and billions of zeros and ones. Um, there's nothing. There's no way to process that uh, for at, at a high level for non-computers uh, people, for example. Um, so from binary, you know, we move up the, up the chain. Um, and so there's, uh, so something called, uh, hexadecimal and, 
so I guess before I talk hexadecimal, let's talk a little bit about bits and bytes. So bit is once again just another word for like is is uh, a term for zero one. Uh, the idea of I've got a bit of information, which means tells me that zero is it zero or one. I like the um, term wad. Wad. A wad of information. <laughs> Never mind. That, that, okay. I'm so correct. That, that's pretty technical. Let's uh, whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a bit of information uh, is actually a technical term as opposed to wad. Um, and byte <laughs> is... Some is, shade there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, a byte is... So you bits and bytes. Uh, that, and there's some confusion even at the at the level uh, Matt was talking about before. You get like gigabits and gigabytes. You'll hear both of those terms. They're very different because a byte is eight bits. Uh, it's a way to... Um, essentially uh, chunk information into these 8-bit um, groups. Wads. Okay. <laughs> yes, Good let's way make to remember that, this. Let's is, make that a thing. You, you don't bite off more than you can chew. Bite is more than bit. So there you go. Uh, yes, Tim. Um, <laughs> I found that informative and useful. <laughs> there you go. What is your problem, Carl? Yeah. Okay. So, and and the <laughs> before before we lose our whole audience, um, the reason that there are eight bits in a byte has to do with the information we're trying to encode. So, the reason um, that we have uh, that number is that we were trying to encode uh, letters. So, essentially, I've got um, a letter I want to encode in the computer. Uh, I'm and I need to use a certain number of digits, uh, zero, one binary digits to, um, to encode that information. And it turns out to encode um, one of the uh, Roman alphabet letters, we need, you need eight bits. Uh, that's, and it's a system called ASCII, A-S-C-I-I, for those that want to Google it later, because we're not going to go into depth into encoding. But, uh, and so that's where we get bytes is that we're encoding uh, letters and, and therefore we needed eight bits. And so that became a byte, uh, a way of essentially organizing uh, the, these bits of data into larger groups that can be representative of a particular character. And so from that, we went to, uh, and so that's also, once again, all of these um, play together. It, this hexadecimal, as I already mentioned, hexadecimal is once again, just a, it's a, it's a base 16 um, counting uh system and so if, instead of if i may ask uh yeah because i am uh, truly a layman all over the place here uh what do you mean by base 16 uh base 16 meaning yeah that's what i was about to so essentially when, when you think decimal when you think what you're counting that you do at um when you learn it in preschool you're counting from uh zero up to nine and then you go and you add a digit right the tens place um, and, and then as, as you get up to, up to the 99, you, uh, you add another place anyway, but, um, the, uh, you can think of, uh, that's, it's arbitrary, right? The, the, the numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, why don't we have a, another number that is fluff? Okay. That's, um, the name of uh, a number that has not yet been invented, right? Um, 
Okay, so that sounds really random and kind of weird. But so instead of some word that just comes is proceeded out of my mouth, imagine that it's the letter A is the next number after nine that you can use to count. A, um, and so instead of stopping at nine, you can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, A, B, C, D, E, F. Okay, I, sorry, I didn't start at zero. So uh, essentially you count to 16, which is F, before you have to add another digit. And so that is hexadecimal, meaning 16, you're representing 16 bits of information in one digit in one decimal place. So instead of having to add a tens place, you're adding a 16s place. Um, and so that is once again related to the idea of bits and bytes. So uh, with one hexadecimal um, digit, you can represent four bits. So you only need two hexadecimal places to, uh, to encode, uh, to represent a byte of information. And so that uh, was uh, useful and uh, adopted by computers, uh, computer programmers, computer software, uh, science engineers very early on. And so hexadecimal is kind of the standard. Um, and I, once again, I'm not going to go too far into encoding. So hexadecimal is really useful. I, talk, I mentioned ASCII, which is just um, a way of representing characters. There's Unicode these days, so it turns out the Roman alphabet is not all the information that we need to encode, all, not all the characters that we need to encode into a computer. So we went from ASCII uh, to a uh, UTF. Uh, it's, a, it's a Unicode representation, so it just means all of a sudden instead of um, eight bits or one byte, we now use uh, a double byte uh, character. So we need two bytes in order to encode um, the information for all the languages across the world that have different characters. So Unicode is the standard now um, across computers, and that's once again enables computers to be able to understand what's written on the disk. If it doesn't know um, what uh, characters are being encoded, it can't decode. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a, kind of a basic understanding of some of the encoding and uh, basic under, uh, language of the computer. Um, one real quick interesting fact for those that uh, so there's I had a, a software engineer interview early on in my career where I was asked to uh, write on the board in binary the number 254. Um, so that sounds kind of daunting given that we don't count in binary and so. Uh, the idea of encoding two, the number 254 in binary to me, even though I was familiar with what binary was, was daunting uh, in, the, in that interview at that time. Luckily, I, I was prodded with a bit of a smile to think about it a little more deeply. Um, turns out that in a byte of data, you have eight bits, and um, the number, the highest number of an integer, and this you'll learn in your basic computer science classes, the basic integer can only go, uh, it represents um, 256 uh, potential values for an integer. So uh, the number uh, in a byte, the highest number that can be represented by a byte is uh, 255, if you're starting at zero, to count to 255. So when I was being asked to encode in binary, or to write in binary uh, 254, all they were asking for is 1111110. Um, and so if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're interviewing for a job and they ask you to do that, I've now given you the answer. Um, nice work. Yes, uh, here I am doing the universe. 
<laughs> now software companies across the world are going to have to totally revamp their hiring scheme. <laughs> right, exactly. It is useful to understand once again, just though that uh, this is just a way to encode information, right? And that's and if you know some of these tricks, uh, it, it can be really fun and interesting. Um, Okay, let's move a little bit on from that very basic level computer science um, understanding, which um, uh, to, to something a little more, more real world, something that you might have a little more familiarity with, and that's operating systems. So, Tim, um, name an operating system for us. Uh, Caterpillar. No, that's, sorry. I'm just, oh, my uh, word. Operating. There was this guy operating heavy machinery and operating systems. No, no operating systems. So you've got what DOS? Uh, no, nobody has Windows. DOS anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you <laughs> had tool. DOS, Tim. You had DOS. <laughs> <laughs> no, Windows would probably be the operating system that most people would yes. be familiar with, right? Correct. Correct. Or um, yes, Windows and or uh, Mac, Macintosh. Um, What's their called? System. OS, right? Or yeah, uh, OS. Yeah, I don't even know what version they're on these days. Seventy-four. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't. I don't deal with Macintosh computers. I don't. I haven't programmed on a Mac, I think ever. And if I have, it was ten or fifteen years ago. So, um, but yeah, operating systems. And then there's one more that you really are only exposed to if you're in the computer science world, and that's Linux. And there are different varieties of Linux. Um, but uh, the same underlying core in it, uh, kernel. Um, so the, essentially, you can understand the operating system is, uh, is, is just the, uh, the ghost in the machine. It's, it's the thing that does all the, uh, the, that makes the whole hardware work together. It manipulates the memory. It uh, reads from the hard drive. It, uh, it, it does all of those things for you. It, oh, it, it turns the hardware into software, essentially. It, it makes it all accessible to you, the user who can't see, you know, all the microscopic ones and zeros and interpret right. them. Yeah. And, and they're very structurally different. Obviously, they, they, they have the same functions largely, um, but they're, they're structurally quite different, which is why you can't take a if you have a, a program that, that runs on Windows, you can't just pull it onto Mac and install it there. Though nowadays people don't even know what that means. Install program is kind of foreign to a lot of people given that they just open their browser and assume that they can do everything there. But um, a browser is an installed program on, on an operating system. And so, um, yeah, the, uh, I won't go once again too deep into this. Generally the, the theme of this podcast is not, not go too deep, but understanding that an operating system is very uh, foundational in, in what is uh, how the computer is managed and uh, and what kind of um, software it can work with. So um, any questions about that, Tim or Matt? I am like, good. Good work. <laughs> okay. Well, I, once again, I, I would just, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I would just point out that in talking about browsers and operating systems and so forth, it, it's good to pay attention to the difference. A lot of times, people, we, we tend to bleed them together because certain companies will produce both. For example, Microsoft, you know, makes the, the operating system Windows. They also have a browser, you know, currently called Edge, right? And um, yeah, which so and just, once again, yeah, sorry. Tim, oh, anyways, I, I, yeah, I, just pay attention to the difference. And I think especially because as, as we get into kind of the streaming based 
um, age of computing, I think the the line between your computer and your computer's operating system and the internet is getting blurry. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, for a lot of people that it doesn't, uh, I mean, my kids, for example, don't have any idea what the difference is. Um, so, and we can talk about that a little bit later, a little bit later, we're going to talk just briefly about the internet, but um, real quick, before we move on from uh, operating systems, there is this perception that Windows is somehow inferior to uh, Macintosh uh, computers operating systems in that um, they're more susceptible to malware or viruses. This is a fallacy. Um, it is not the case that Windows are somehow inherently more vulnerable or have flaws in them. Uh, of course they do. Windows is not a perfect piece of, I mean, a, an operating system is software. It's just low level software. It's not perfect by any means uh, and has vulnerabilities. So does uh, the Mac OS. So um, the fact that Windows ha uh, historically has had more viruses and more malware is uh, reflective of the fact that it's been the dominant operating system now for like well over two decades. So more people target it because there's a broader user base. And so um, if you probably read that before, maybe some of your friends, and maybe you don't believe it. Take it from me, it's the truth. Uh, and uh, the most recent information I had on it is Mac and, uh, Macintosh, uh, Mac OS system um, in the last year have actually been more prone to malware than Windows. So we've had the tables turned um, Microsoft step up their security measures and, um, and now we're getting more people targeting uh, Macs. What, br very briefly, um, a Linux, the only thing that the, the layman needs to know about a Linux uh, operating system is that those are often running on uh, servers. And servers are, are it's a, it sounds like a very fancy word and confuses people sometimes. All a server is is, is a computer that is set up to serve um, information on the on the internet or or on on a network, and so it is a machine that is uh, hosting something. So it has some some information, a program, a website, something on it that can be accessed on a network, be that the internet or a local network. That is what a server is, and so often a uh, Linux uh, operating system is running on those because once again in the computer science world, Linux is very popular. It's a free operating system and it gives you a lot of control and a lot of power to the to the user um, and that's obviously nice when you're a computer scientist and you know what to do with that it's less nice when you're a layman and you have no idea what to do and you shoot yourself in the foot often so <laughs> it, that's and i'll just plug in real quick to, to try to visualize servers if you've ever seen those movies where the tech guy breaks into the you know, into the building and goes into like the computer so it can hack into the system and goes into that room with big stacks and stacks of those little boxes. And that those are servers, if you want to visualize it that way. Basically, just big stacks of hard drives without monitors and keyboards and stuff because right. servers they're not don't. there. Right. Yeah. Servers don't need to have, yeah, don't monitors, no keyboards. Um, they're just, yeah, generally a hard drive, memory. Um, CPU, they, they have the, they don't have the user interface that um, that a normal desktop computer or laptop or a tablet have. So, oh, and if you're wondering where you're differently, but yes, correct. 
Yeah. And if you're wondering where your Google Docs and your Dropbox files and all those things, mm. your iCloud stuff, where is all that stored? It's stored in servers. So it actually That's has a physical, you know, or locations where the information is actually physically kept somewhere. Right. And and yeah, you want to envision it differently than than your home computer. At least hopefully your your content is not stored on a computer like what you have sitting in your uh, in your front room or whatever. It it is a very they're generally uh, kept somewhere safe. Uh, they're generally kept. There's a server room usually, or if you're a big company, I mean, they have they have warehouses, right? The uh, data warehouses and 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 multiple redundancy. So you'll have uh, data centers across the United States, across the world, where your data is is uh, written and and backed up and and all kinds of stuff. So uh, computers these days. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And just junior high school teacher and me coming out. And this is why anything you do on the Internet is permanent and can't be deleted ever, ever. So be very uh -huh. careful what you say or do online, because it's always going to be out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some privacy protocols are coming. I mean, they're certainly in vogue uh, and they are uh, very powerful in in the eu for example um where your data cannot live forever uh but jet the the default of a, com a computer scientist is save it and don't lose it the worst thing you can do with data is lose it so um the default is save all of the things and uh, and then yeah depending on on rules and morals uh sometimes you when the when the customer says lose this um, but the default is don't lose anything. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's okay. So let's move on to, uh, computer languages. Um, and we'll give a, just a very brief history. I'm not going to hit all the different languages that have been developed from the beginning of you know, the 1950s. That's not something I'm interested in. One of the first languages, I believe the first formal language was Fortran. I have zero experience with it. It was, it was a thing. That's all I know. Uh, moved on from there, you get uh, so these very early languages are dealing. Um, they're they're just kind of a step or two above assembly language. Assembly language is is kind of um, you're almost writing. You're not writing in hex. You're not writing in binary. But you're just you're just an abstraction or two above that. You're literally telling the operating system every instruction you want it to do. You have to iterate. You have to say exactly what you want the operating system to do with all of your memory, with what you want, what you want it to do on the uh, display, what you want happen to happen in the hard drive. You have to keep in mind every piece of uh, the computer and and program it very very clearly with every single instruction. It's not that that's not the case that uh, in current computer languages that you can be um, that those things don't matter, but those things have been essentially tucked under the covers and just incorporated and um, because those things are standard. They're, they've been standardized across the board and, and they don't need to be uh, me manipulating memory is not something that that needs to be done anymore uh, by and large. Um, so the uh, languages like C, um, maybe you've heard of the, uh, C before. C is one of the uh, big languages that's uh, that's been around for a long time that still gets used someday uh, sometimes uh, today. But that is a language that is uh, uh, that does some memory management directly in the language. 
but uh, there's um, these days the main languages are, are um, Java, uh, C sharp, um, Python. Um, there are a number of JavaScript and um, and and those are uh, a lot of these things. So there's some this concept in, in computer science of, of libraries, um, and, and essentially a library in computer science isn't like a library in uh, in the real world where you pick up books. It's it is a library of code where particular functions, particular sets of instructions have already been coded up, and all you need to do is find one that's useful to you, use pull that library in, make it accessible to the code that you're writing, and say do that thing that that library does right there. And so you, you call that library. Essentially, you say, point at that library. I want you to do that instruction right there. Uh, and so that's largely these days in programming, you, you, you uh, work with a lot of libraries um, because, of course, over the last 40 years with uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of programmers worldwide programming, you've got so many things, so many programs, so many uh, already existing technologies out there that are, can be useful that uh, the question now often though not ex exclusively but often is more innovation um, you know I need to, get, to pull a couple of these together to make an innovative solution on the computer for um, you know, social networking so um, instead of having to code up how do I take a particular data structure and and uh, find a uh, prime number you know that the most computer engineers do more with libraries than they do with um, algorithmic analysis and things like that um, okay let's move on briefly here to the internet before we talk so the internet once again tim already mentioned so that you kind of blur the lines here a little bit between uh, these days between your your computer, what's running on your computer locally, and what's running on the internet. Um, and so there's some some important terms to be familiar with, and this idea of uh, the, should maybe help you understand what's running on your computer versus what's running on the internet. And what the first one I already mentioned is a server. Um, and I already explained what a server is. So a server is literally just what's serving the content up to the internet or the network. And, uh, and that's being consumed uh, by a client. And so the client is generally what you've got on your computer. Uh, and so in the internet worlds, I've got my browser and that's, uh, that's a client, right? That's, uh, that's what pulls down um, data uh, from the internet or the network and, and makes it, use of it on your computer. Um, and so let's say I'm going to a website um, my client is going to say, okay, I've got www.google.com um, and I go to, the, to a network. I'm not going to go through all of the IT here, the uh, information systems information on how to walk through what happens with a domain name server and how we get, uh, because I believe that's a step too far of the layman. And honestly, I'm not an IT specialist. I know the basics here, but, um, but essentially you're going to get, you're going to say, go to this computer. And it's going to resolve to a particular server out there, uh, and it's going to serve up a particular piece of content. And in that case, it's the Google homepage. So somewhere out there, there is data written that says, this is the Google homepage. And so it serves it back up to you. Uh, and so that's coming across the internet. The wire is coming, uh, fiber optic, actually a wire, um, 
whatever and coming back inside your home, going through your router and coming back to your computer. Um, it all happens obviously incredibly quickly. Um, and, and it comes in on your computer and your computer knows how to recognize it because of what's called ports. Um, there, the way it was explained to me is a port in your computer is, it's kind of like windows in a multi-storied house. Um, you have, you, and if you then numbered the, numbered the windows, um, you could say, okay, well, I know that I sent a request out of number, window number five uh, for Google to give me something back. And now I'm getting data back in window number five. So I can assume that this will probably, and it's coming from this IP address, which is an IP address is, is like a computer identifier. Um, and I, therefore I'm gonna interpret that as the Google homepage and I'm gonna uh, display that on my client. And once again, client, client being the browser in this case. Um, let's see. Uh, so a little bit about, yeah, those protocols. And, th and those are called internet protocols. So different ways to encode data that goes in and out of your computer via the internet. Um, and they're, the one that you've probably seen and familiar with is your HTTP or hypertext protocol. Um, and that one, there's the, the internet standard these days is HTTPS, which um, that S at the end is secure. And, and so that's once again, how you, your computers essentially has a, an agreement. There's a handshake going on here that says, I know that this has been encrypted and certified as the data that I ask for or that, that is being served up by the correct machine, as opposed to someone that's just hacked in, said, I'm um, this, I'm Google. I'm going to serve up this content. Well, it can't do that because of these, uh, they're called secure protocol, uh, sorry, SSLs. Okay. SSL stands for secure sockets layer. And so that's essentially, um, it's a secure protocol developed for sending information, once again, securely over the internet so that it can't be hacked. There can't be information added or uh, spliced in that includes malware or something like that, that then will be sucked into your computer and executed on your machine. Uh, and that's once again, once uh, once you get that data in via port 80, which is the internet port, and start rendering it in your machine, that's when you got a problem, right? Because if it includes instructions, so if you're assuming that it's the Google homepage and your client says, oh, cool, I'm going to show them the Google homepage. And inside of that, there's code that also says, hey, this is a Google homepage, and it's also a virus that's going to blow up your computer. Your computer is going to say, awesome, let's blow up my, uh, let's blow ourselves up. Um, and so that's, some of the con concerns. Um, and so that's why these SSL certificates or these secure socket layers are essentially uh, an agreement uh, on the, the, for the protocol that says this information is secure and will be um, transferred correctly and safely. Um, and so that's the, the HTTP protocol has been extended for HTTPS and that's uh, once again, um, that secure layer. Uh, there are other protocols, um, and we won't talk to them uh, talk to them too much. Um, right before we started our podcast, Matt asked me what TCP versus UCP is. Those are different types of uh, protocols that, once again, your your layman doesn't probably have any familiarity with. But I'll touch on in case um, you are wondering, um, like Matt is. And uh, honestly, I don't even so it's user so UDP is user uh, datagram protocol. Uh, and TCP is transmission control protocol. And honestly, I'm not going to talk too much about what the differences are because I only know of one difference, even as a computer scientist. TCP is a handshake agreement. So it's literally 
I'm connected to another computer or a server on the network. I am connected. We have had a handshake agreement sent between us, meaning I sent a signal that said, hey, uh, the server sent a, sent a signal back that said, hey. And we said, oh, cool, that's our connection. We can, and we actually have an open connection going back and forth. A UDP, or, sorry, UCP is a broadcast. Um, protocol, which literally just means I'm going to spam whoever's listening. So the server is just going to send this information out. And if anyone is listening to that server, it's going to get that information. It's going to uh, bring it in. There's no uh, there's no handshake agreement. Um, it's 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 connectionless. It's just literally. Um, yeah, that, that's the, the main difference that I'm familiar with. I'm reading something here. It says TCP does error checking. It makes error recovery. On the other hand, UDP performs error checking, but it discards erroneous packets. Packets are how data, uh, data is uh, transferred across the internet. Um, just you can it, once again, it's just a way of pa packaging data together, and they call it a packet. And and there's um, you know the less packets, the less data that's being transferred. But so that's the very basic level of U, uh, TCP UCP. Once once again, you're probably not going to have any familiar, familiarity with unless you are doing something beyond just the, the lay uh, internet browsing or internet consuming. But um, once again, the browser is your main client that you work with on the internet that is installed on your computer. It is running on your OS and the uh, what it's consuming is pull, it, it's pulling things off the internet. It's pulling in th things off over the internet, through your router, through your modem, out to uh, DNS, um, grabbing, uh, which is then resolving to some IP out there, which is once again, some computer that exists out there somewhere physically um well probably physically it could be a virtual machine but the virtual machine is hosted on a machine um sorry probably going slightly too deep here but that's uh, and then and then it comes back to you pulls it into your machine and you do something with that um and that is a server and so something like a chromebook uh that is kind of the whole thing that a chromebook does right it has a browser and it runs um that and there is no, there are no installed programs. It just assumes that all of the the things that you need to do on a computer can now be done in your browser. And by and large, that's true. Uh, there are still a lot of programs that that are installed cl uh, clients, and often those have more power. They have um, because once again, you're not sending um, information out uh, or or waiting for it to come back. You're doing the calculations and the instructions and the and the um, execution of those things is happening on your machine on the internet um, one other uh, term i was going to hit on that i forgot about is an api and that might be something you've heard of before uh, and an api is literally just uh the uh it's it, sorry it stands for um application programming interface um and all that is, once again, to, to boil it down to the layman terms, is I'm saying, okay, look, I need to log in to my bank. So my bank, let's call it Bank of America, is uh, has hosts what's called an API. Um, and so I log into, um, I, I go to bankofamerica.com, and now I'm going, I'm, I'm on their website, and their website are web pages. But those web pages need to talk to a server uh, somewhere that is hosting the data. So there's a database server and a web server. A web server serves up websites. A database server serves, uh, hosts what's called databases or where the, da the data 
um, for, for example, a bank or your user information or your Facebook information. All of that is stored in a database somewhere on a database server. Once again, a computer that is serving up data. A web server is a server that is serving up websites or web information um, independent of uh, the data that, that it, it pulls data from somewhere else. And so if I'm on Bank of America, I want to log in. Bank of America says, okay, well, in order to log in, you're going to type here in, on our website. And then when, once you hit enter, we're going to send that to uh, our API. And once again, application programming interface, that is a server out there, once again, that is an API server, which is uh, saying, I'm going to take information, I'm going to uh, talk to the database, I'm going to say, oh yes, Timothy Cox is a customer at Bank of America, that is his username and his password, let's authenticate him to let him do the uh, other functions on our website. So, and all of those functions, is it, be it transfer money, um, you know, whatever it might be on a bank, uh, are all once again. That's going. To, you're going to type. You're going to do. Click a button on the website. The website's going to go to the API. The API is going to say, "Oh, you want to transfer money?" Uh, and so tell the API is going to say, "Tell me how much money. Tell me who you're transferring it to, and give me your um, authentication. Make sure that Tim Timothy Cox is still the person who is doing this." Uh, and that's going to ask the the client to give them. So when when you logged in, it's sending back a uh, a token, a long string of characters that, or there are other ways to do it as well, but that identify you as you being logged into a particular computer. And so an API does all those manipulations and uh, talks to the database and serves it back up to the website, and the website serves it back up to you. So to recap really quick, what I was just talking about the um, when you go to the internet, when you go to a website, essentially there are multiple computers, multiple servers involved. And so just kind of a layman understanding of there's there's a thing that you see, right? The, the user interface, and that's your the web pages that you're seeing. But usually the, your website is also doing something. It's not just displaying images and text. Now, there are those types of websites. In that case, there will be no API because the API is more of the actual functions of a website so like in the case of a bank transferring money um, paying bills those are things that need to be done by an application there are multiple steps uh, that, need, that need to happen there that needs to be able to grab data there are lots of things the authentication related that need to happen and so that doesn't happen in a web web page a web page is often once again just images text um, and some basic functions to make to make the web page work as opposed to actually doing manipulations on on data doing calculations those types of things generally happen at the api le level and the database server is literally just for data just for holding and serving the data and so that's the different roles so when you go to a web page often those are the the components involved so just to clarify that's that's what we're talking about here um, and so that is uh, kind of a very quick, hopefully understandable overview of how websites and internet traffic works. Um, and that's, I think, where we're going to leave it for now, for today, given this has already been quite a Carl? long Yes, Tim. Sorry, this might be a bit jarring. Could I just touch real quick on the difference between a, uh, a 
uh, excuse me, a search engine and a browser. Uh, you you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, just for, just something that I find people commonly mix up and and um, so re so real quick, as Carl was explaining it to you, a browser is a program um, that allows you to access you know the internet and everything that's out there. Um, common browsers are you know Microsoft makes Edge, uh, Google makes Chrome. There's Firefox, um, there's Safari. Uh, do you guys have any others uh, that you can think of? Uh, I mean, the, yeah, by and very uh, few of those sound like real words to me. <laughs> That's right. They have fun naming browsers. But and people, I think, get mixed up because, for example, Google makes the Chrome browser, but Google is also a search engine and runs a search engine which is you know google and so people get them mixed up but just to clarify chrome and google the search engine are not the same thing chrome is the program the browser that you you know install on your computer that allows you to access and use the internet um, google is a search engine which actually um so it it crawls the internet and basically takes pictures of you know different uh, of everything out there and scans it and then puts it into this super huge search so that when you type in a keyword in google in the search engine it will bring up you know relevant results um but and again google has made it so seamless that when you type a, a keyword into the browser you know, um, address bar, the URL, it will conduct a Google search. And so it's kind of blurred the line. But um, just, you know, know the difference. Uh, a browser is the program that allows you to access and, you know, make sense and use the internet. A search engine is a, um, a service that allows you to search different things on the internet they're not the same thing um, other examples of search engines would be bing um i can't really think of any other search engines you guys know any others they all went away after google kind of dominated them all yahoo uh oh yeah there yeah used to okay. be a number of others um alta vista northern light dogpile uh, they're kind of dead but and and so to to understand how I don't know Carl maybe uh, search engines would be a topic for another another day but just uh, the the basic function of a search engine like Google is they they go around and base, basically catalog everything that's out there on the internet and then they they have these algorithms that basically sort them into into relevance and the kind of so that you get the results that are most likely what you were actually looking for. And so when you do a search, they connect you to the sites that seem to match best with what you're looking for. And they're very yeah. secretive about their process and their algorithms and stuff. And, and they're actually pretty darn effective usually for helping connect you to what you're looking for. Yeah. Information retrieval is really something, I mean, um, 
is really interesting and certainly one that we could do a podcast about. And yeah, that would inc obviously include um, search engine discussion. Um, so that is something that I studied. And, and, and now that I've almost finished up with our podcast here, um, a, a cab. So I've said I've been working in the field now for what I, is it 11 or 12 years. Um, the uh, my like I've said in previous podcasts, I studied uh, linguistics in college. I did take some computer science pro, uh, classes and near the end of my undergrad, and I went on to get a master's degree. Um, I did study largely computers, but it was always language and computers. I took very few, though some, um, just pure CS classes. And so a lot of the things I just talked about are things that I've learned subsequent to school. So things I've learned actually on on the job. And so the definitions and, and the explanations you're getting might differ than from some of those you'd hear from a, a pure CS um, student uh, because they study that directly as opposed to just, uh, you know, a working knowledge of that information like what I had to acquire. So um, like UDP, uh, uh, TCP are, are things that you talk about in networking class. Well, I didn't take networking class. I just had to understand how they worked enough to make them work for what I needed to do. Um, and so that's uh, that's kind of your layman knowledge. And so that's why I think this is relevant and hopefully useful for the layman. Um, as if uh, I know a lot of people out there um, are unfortunately without jobs, uh, global uh, issues with the uh, coronavirus notwithstanding, people obviously are generally uh, looking for ways to make a living. And so computer science is a great way to do it. There's always jobs in this area. And so hopefully this is uh, giving you at least some basic understanding of, of uh, some of how the computer works, how the internet works, and uh, hopefully that's useful to you in the future. Two other points of interest here before we sign off on this podcast. First, um, the uh, this is an interesting fact, like I've mentioned in previous podcasts, something we'll do on occasion and uh, discuss just an interesting fact not necessarily pertaining to the subject of the day. This is pertaining to a subject uh, that we uh, discussed in a very recent podcast at a fission and fusion uh, in the news uh, all over recently. So you've potentially already read it is uh, a fusion reactor, a relatively small fusion reactor, I believe, that has uh, been um, essentially it has, it, they're starting the, the building process, I believe, next year here in the United States. I worked on by a team of uh, uh, MIT scientists um, and uh, using a Russian design uh, for a reactor. They've come up with a, uh, a fusion reactor that uh, the, the term I believe I read from a nuclear scientist said is almost certain to uh, create a sustainable fusion uh, that you can harness um, that can, it will produce more energy than it consumes. So this is exactly what we were talking about, exactly what we've wanted for a long time. And while it is still one of these uh, in five years, uh, the all the articles I read about it um, sound uh, the, the nuclear scientists sound very excited about this potential. And yeah, five years yeah. away, they say in 2025, they should have this reactor done uh, in the United States. And it'll be about the time that the ITER, whatever it is in France, I guess maybe that's one year sooner, but it's significantly smaller. It's a significantly more, um, reproducible. And, uh, there are very, very high hopes for this. 
uh, that, and once again, pointing at the year 2025 to be the year that this is complete. And uh, yeah, the, the nuclear physicists that have looked at it said this, this looks incredibly promising and very likely to succeed. So were and they uh, arguing for the- funding while they were saying that or was <laughs> that a... <laughs> No, as far as I understand, this is... On that if you you would like to get in on the ground level (laughs) of this groundbreaking technology and make an investment that will be sure to be, you know, returned to you many times over, you can send us any multiples of 100, 500, or 1,000. And, um, you know, don't don't miss this opportunity. Tim, that was so unfortunately inane that I have forgotten my second point. (laughs) <laughs> and I, now my job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yes, go back and listen to our Fission Fusion podcast. Uh, very relevant right now in the news. Once again, if you just Google Fusion Reactor, you'll read you'll find all these articles that I've been reading that uh, look like they are very uh, like hopefully finally we're very close. And uh, so uh, I'm excited about it, even if it is five years away. It looks like it's potentially going to happen um so that will i think finish us up today um we'll we'll continue with other computer science related podcasts in the future i'm sure it is very um a very big topic and we did no more than scratch the surface with this basics discussion but um hopefully it was helpful and uh, we will see you back next podcast 